Rough, rough. Meow, meow. The boys are back. I'm your co-host of Put Them on the Couch, Jason McCoy, the site guy, alongside our trusted friend, Nelson Bullier. And co-host, Nelson. Yeah, you know, people actually used to hiss in the 1800s when they disapproved of something. They actually hissed at people. So let's hope we don't get any hisses on this podcast. At least well, the not. only hisses I've been hearing lately are coming from the feedback of my ill equipment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I went to buy some new mics yesterday and I realized I don't have the money to spring for the Shure SM7B. Those things are $400 each. So we're going to keep rolling with these $100 models. They work fun. Now, honestly, I would have had the money, but my wife spent a little too much yesterday. On um, what? Wasn't Amazon. Take another guess. Um, you got me. Roof, um, roof. A dog? She bought a dog? Two of them. Puppies. Two. Oh, God. Rare breeds. Oh, God. What, what kind of breed are we talking about? Miniature sheepardoodles. Where do people? Where did people start coming up with these Charles things? Charles Darwin, man. Artificial yeah, selection. I get artificial selection. That's right. Yeah. yeah, that's great from the evolutionary psych guy. Yeah, you take these... Bits and pieces of the dogs as they exist, and you breed them solely for those specific traits. And so, is that those traits you, get exaggerated, right? Is that where you came up with this? This is what we're talking about today. We're going to do a little pets, talk about pets. Well, part of it um, is based upon my own interest in people's relationships with pets. Yeah. I myself have never had strong relationships with pets, but as now a father of a six year old and eight year old, I have no choice. Right. They've moved pets into my house. We have two cats. We have two dogs now. We have a gecko named Lin, uh, Lenny. And I think we have a fish. All right. Well, two of those animals, or I guess four now with your dogs and your cats, they know they exist. I don't know about geckos or fish, but hey, each their own, right? Yeah. Uh, secondarily, I uh, did my own research. I mean, actually did a scientific survey about 10 years ago asking people to articulate their attachment to pets, both real and imagined. So for those people in my survey who didn't have pets, I asked them to imagine a time when they did have pets or imagine having a pet in the future. And then I gave them the old philosophical trolley problem, asked those people if they were in a situation where it was life or death, save your pet, even a hypothetical pet, or save a person. And I varied the questions so that sometimes the person was a first-degree relative like a biological father, mother, grandmother. Other times it was a hometown stranger or, say, a foreign tourist. 54% of the people who took my survey, and I surveyed about 600 people, said they would save a pet over a human. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that really doesn't surprise me. And I'll tell you why it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me uh, because... The history that we have developed alongside animals, in particular, the animals, you know, our most common pets, right? Our dogs uh, yeah, and the, our cats. Yeah, the ones that work. The ones that, well, historically at least. There's been a lot of animal domestication. First of all, animal domestication is a really complicated process. There's very few animals out there that can actually be domesticated. There are certain things that animals have to be able to do. Uh, in order to be domesticated, mm -hmm. for instance, they have to be able to survive on many different foods. They have to be able to breed in close quarters. They have to have a very flexible social structure and be able to recognize human beings 
within that structure. And if it sounds to you like I'm talking about a dog. It sounds to me like you might be an expert on this. You know, I used expert. to call you the bird watcher, but yeah, man, maybe I need to call a- you the dog whisperer. A- animal animal whisper. domestication is a is a hobby of mine. Okay. Uh, it's just a fascination. I mean, look, if you if you look at our history, an animal like the dog, which we believe was the first animal to actually be domesticated, probably domesticated itself. Ooh, yeah, chicken the egg, right? So did, well, did we domesticate it, the dog or did the, the dog, dog probably domesticate itself? Domesticated itself. And after well, that, the first animal domesticated for work was probably the sheep. Uh we are for for supply for store sheep, goats, horses, horses obviously. Yeah. Uh the first and only animal domesticated solely for the enjoyment of people mm-hmm. um, is the cat. And the cat was actually domesticated two separate times. Wow. We used to think the cat was domesticated in Egypt, but on the island of Cyprus, we found cat remains, mummified cat remains. In we dated them back to about 9,000 years ago. So wow. well before the Egyptian domestication. Right. So cats had cast their spell over people Many, many, many centuries ago. Absolutely. Look, Look, here's the thing about it. I right? mean, I, as much as I love the the sort of historical jaunt through time, I think our audience would be more interested in some of these questions you and I were talking about just before we went on air. It doesn't sound as smart, I know, but I think they'd want to hear or maybe even participate in a conversation like this. Why is it that we love some animals but not others? Why is it that we're willing to eat some animals, but not others? Why is it that we're willing That's to a good hunt and stalk some animals but more than others? Uh, we've, got a, we've got a guest in the audience today who uh, might be able to shed some light on some of these questions that I'm putting forward. A couple others now. Why is it that humans seem to have such an exaggerated relationship with animals? It's either love or hate it. With other humans, there's some that I tolerate, some that I have around every now and then, some I absolutely despise and don't want to be a part of their life at all, some I absolutely love, obsess over, and don't want to ever be away from them, in the case of my kids or my wife. But it seems to me that most humans have a very exaggerated relationship with animals, particularly dogs. Yeah. It's, I love my dogs, I'm don't all in. Don't sleep on the cats. Or, don't sleep well, on the cats. I was going to say. I, I'm a cat guy. No, yeah, I, I agree, but I think there's probably more dog guys than there are cats. There probably guys. are. Yeah, but, but I think so that's the I, question I, I think the ask. reason why I, is that? Yeah. I think the reason for it, and this is you know my take on it, is the relationship that you have with a pet is so uncomplicated, right? Yeah. They don't need anything from you except love, affection, and well, tell that to those two and, and puppies food, right? that wouldn't sleep all night last night. But they, they don't. They wanted comfort and exactly. snuggles that's, that, and your relationship with your mom, your yeah. relationship with your dad. Uh, I'm sure you love your mom. I'm sure you loved your dad. It's a complicated relationship. Even the best relationship is complicated. It's not perfect. A relationship with an animal, and again, that's why I'm not surprised about your study. A relationship with an animal is uncomplicated. uncomplicated. It's just based on love. But nevertheless, it's still exhausting. It's still expensive. You have to admit. I mean, yeah, you can do it the cheap way. You can go to the the kennel and get an adoption for 20, 30 bucks. Then there are those other people my wife included, and perhaps our guest here in a second that's going to shed some light on this, that again are all in. They treat them not in the abstract like a family member, right? Like a family. The way our employers do with us sometimes <laughs> where they say, oh, we're all a family. They will take them to the vet if it seems as if they have a loose tooth. They will buy birthday gifts for them. They will celebrate them on their Facebook page. They will throw 
birthday parties and Christmas parties. Well, they'll, they'll right? celebrate. We have friends, you know, we, we know people, they celebrate themselves. Um, they don't have kids, so they have like Father's Day and Mother's Day is like their day still because they're, uh, they're doggy dads and puppy moms and, right. you know, they celebrate themselves. Yeah. Uh, people go over the top yeah. with these things. The fanatic. The fanatics. And, and speaking of fanatics, I've got a guest that I think he would probably agree. He's a fanatic. Oh, yeah. Um, and yeah. He, he's definitely a dog dad. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome back, man. Welcome back. How you doing? Just lovely. Yeah. So you're a uh, you're a dog dad too, huh? In addition to being a double lung transplant recipient, you're a dog dad. Tell me about your love of dogs, your affection with dogs. Well, I I just want to start with I was listening to you guys in the green room. You're talking about what's this love affair with people and their dogs. One of my part time jobs is I do dog sitting. And cat sitting. So I am actually secondarily employed as someone that will come to your house. I will feed your cats. I will play with the dogs. I will clean up. I will do what's ever necessary to make sure that your babies are safe and sound. I'll text message you and send pictures and stuff like that as a reassurance. So it's almost like having a, a nanny or a babysitter. And, you know, Everybody's familiar with the concept of babysitter. Not everybody's familiar with the concept of paying somebody to come take care of your animals. Now, the irony is both of you have employed me to look after your animals. Yes. Uh, the other thing, and this is a nice little segue from the previous podcast. After my surgery was over, after I you know, completed rehab and I was back on my own, back to work, one of the no-nos I was told you know, because they, they came up with some strict rules about what I could do, what I could eat, what I could, you know, be around. One of the restrictions was the dog. And I had already had a dog that I had owned for 10 years. And they're like, well, you, you can have a dog. You just can't pet it. You can't hug it. You can't kiss it. And you can't play with it. And I said, oh, you mean a picture of a dog? <laughs> and I, I told them that was non-negotiable. I stuck with everything else. Would but, you say, take the lungs back if I can't have my dog? Well, the thing is, I'm willing to risk my life because wow. of the quality of my life is improved with a dog. So let's explore that. Why is that, though? What does a dog bring to you that gives you this sense of joy, this sense of love? Like, what is it about this animal, this creature on four legs with fur that brings you such joy? Us such joy. Uh, I've, I've always had German Shepherds growing up. I mean, we got our first one when I was five. So to me, obviously, the context is this is family. Right. You know, when I was a little kid, we had a dog, uh, very protective. You know, eventually we had two German Shepherds, and I lived in a bad neighborhood in New Jersey, and plenty of houses got broken into. But, you know, you, you have 200-pound-plus German Shepherds in your house, and the odds of getting robbed drop significantly. So there's a protection factor. Um, also, my parents firmly believed in that spare the rod, spoil the child. But whenever they were going to discipline me and my brother, they had to put the dogs outside because the dog was like, uh-uh, you ain't hitting that kid. So to me, they, they represent safety, trust, that somebody's looking out for you. Gotcha. So look, you know, Jason introduced you as a dog fanatic. Um, I'm curious, do you see yourself as a dog fanatic? Uh, yeah, I'm going to have to say um, yes. Okay, so what, what, 
All right, so there are people who love dogs, right? Right. Um, I think everybody loves a dog. I mean, if a puppy walked in here right now, I don't think we'd kick it. it would be, oh, cool, puppy. What differentiates a dog lover, person who likes dogs, from a dog fanatic? What what do you, what qualifies you as a fanatic? There's some common sense things. For example, put a collar on your dog with a tag. Right. So if your dog does get out and it's running down the highway and somebody picks them up, they can be like, "Hey, Nelson, I found your dog. Oh my God, thank you so much." So, but one of the things I noticed when I moved down here is a lot of people don't care. They let their dogs wander. I mean, I've, I've picked some up off of a military cutoff. That's practical, right? Right. Also, um, that's not just like being a responsible pet owner. Right, right. So I'm just going to go through the escalating. Um, what okay. Else? Um, making sure that your animal's healthy. Okay. That includes checkups when they're not bleeding or coughing or limping. You know, the idea of preventative care, which obviously, as everybody knows, preventative care is always so much more efficient than after the fact. So the more you can afford to uh, do that, you know, I, I think that shows a greater level of dedication. Now, one of the things I'm going I'm to give a shout out to Charlotte. I think that's Mecklenburg County, isn't it? Anyway, at the, um, at the dog shelter, if, if you need to surrender your dog, they have a big sign up there that says, if you are surrendering your dog because you can't afford the medical bill for him, they will put you on a payment a payment plan, or even I heard about this. I give, heard about this. Yeah, even give you money to help negotiate for a lower cost. So, I mean, you know, we we criticize a lot of city administrative functions, but this one seems to be right on the path. You know, this this would you know, but it's it's funny, and this is sort of my point, right, Bob? Is we don't really have good payment plans or good public policy if you know we can't pay our rent god i mean i've heard of people who can't you know pay for their kids surgeries and yet our public policy for these animals is like oh no this is really really important uh you know i think and again look please do not misunderstand me i am in no way defending the actions of michael vick dog fighting where did that come from no but but this is my point right like Look at the reaction that that generated. They changed the laws to punish Michael Vick even more than the law at the time allowed. People's reactions to these types of things, people's emotional attachments to these animals drives so much of our public policy and our discussion around dogs. All right, I've got something that's going to blow your mind. All right. In 1860s, there was a girl in New York City, very young, and her parents were abusing her with scissors. They were cutting her and slicing her. And the police wanted to charge the parent, but there was nothing written on the books that said you can't mutilate your own child. What they did was they used animal cruelty laws what? to <laughs> punish the parent. So I think that kind of goes in line with what you're saying. They actually used anti-animal cruelty laws. Which existed before, you know, you can't mutilate your own child laws. Yeah. Wow. And so, what year was that? Uh, it was the 1860s. 1860s. Wow. So what would you do, what would what do you do with, with your dog or uh, with dogs that, you know, where you would consider yourself somebody who's obsessed with dogs or a dog fanatic? 
Well, first of all, dogs require maintenance. They require exercise. You know, there's various level, energy levels for dogs. And I just happen to own a dog that's in the top tier of energy. So every day I have to take him out and exercise him, throw the ball, go for a walk, take him to a dog park, let him run around, take him to my brother's house, let him run around. You know, they require, and in, in a way it's good because it gets me outside doing stuff when otherwise I might be on the couch. That was a little pun for you guys. Um, <laughs> you know, so it requires a lot of effort. And some people don't care. You know, they'll just... I remember watching an episode of The Dog Whisperer, and the dog was tearing up the couch, and nobody could figure out why. So they bring in The Dog Whisperer. Now there's, there's three teenage girls, 17, 18, 19, and then the mom and dad. And Caesar says, uh, well, which one of you plays with the dog? And they all looked at each other like, uh... And he goes, well, I think I found the problem. You know, dogs <laughs> are not supposed to be a centerpiece in your all-American life. They're supposed to be a part of the family. That's right. why the dog was trying to get attention. So let's, let's explore that for a minute. Because there's all, I mean, a lot of people do that with dogs. But let's talk about things that people don't do with dogs, right? Um, and, and, you know, you talked about that payment plan. Is there a point, have you ever expended your, extended yourself financially to, Save a dog that a lot of people might have put down. Yes. Euthanized. Okay, well, what, so tell me that story. What happened? Well, there, there are a couple situations. Some of them are gradual and some of them are immediate. For example, my first, my favoriteest dog I had, Caesar, he developed... Um, Is that where you got that tattoo? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah he's, he's, got a, he's got a, you can't see it, uh, but he's got a dog tattoo, the, the paw print and the name Caesar right on him. I actually have two others. So. Oh, do you? Yeah. Well, with different dog names. Okay. Um, but anyway, so he developed a degenerative myelopathy, which means that the nerves of his body start to go down. Also, he had an enzyme insufficiency, so every month I had to mix enzymes into his food, and that cost a hundred dollars a month. Oh man, that's a hit. It is. But what's interesting, and I think this is probably one of the reasons why I did it, the enzymes he was taking. And you know this if you listen to the, the podcast. Those are the same enzymes I used to take as a kid because of my wow. pancreatic enzyme insufficiency. So for me, you know, I'm basically looking at me. Would I would have wanted somebody to stop the enzymes I need to live? Oh, hell no. So I saw a lot of myself in there. So it, it wasn't surprising to me that I would pay that kind of money. Do, is there a price? Is there a point at which you wouldn't go is there a is there a price that's too high no there's not a price Real, that's there's too. no price that's too high my wife used to joke that our cats have a one thousand dollar living will that they don't want to live uh higher than a thousand dollars so you would pay two thousand three thousand five thousand dollars to and what about age is age a factor you've had a dog for 10 years right um a dog uh i don't know eat something it shouldn't or has a problem with stuff. And the doctor comes to you, the vet says, hey, look, it's going to be two grand or three grand at 10 years with a German Shepherd. Are you paying that? You're a German Shepherd. You've had it for a decade. Are you paying that price? I've already been there and done that. Are you serious? Yeah, I, he wasn't 10. Okay, so that's sounding like, uh, that's sounding... More fanatic-like. I don't know if it's fanatical or if it's just genuine. I mean, it's sometimes there's not much of a difference. It's a fine line, isn't it? I guess it's up to the eye of the beholder or the checkbook of the beholder. But 
um, you know, so Ace had, he was my second German Shepherd as an adult, and he had bitten a tennis ball in half and swallowed both halves, and he ended up getting blockage, and some of his intestines were dying, and I went to the emergency vet, and they told me it was gonna cost like $3,500. And I was like, okay. Wait a minute, $3,500? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, I, we work at the same place. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you've worked there longer, so you probably make, you know, five or six dollars more uh, right. a month. But, but, I mean, do you have that money? I mean, that with, you, with your medical bills, did like was that something you had to extend yourself for? Did you have that? Every year I try to go on vacation. You know, I pick a different country. I go to them. That year, the country I went to was the emergency vet. So all the money I had set aside for me and my girlfriend to go on vacation, that went to Ace to make sure that he was alive. Jeez, that's a sacrifice. And that's what, a sacrifice. And then what I would do is I would come off, come home from work. I would play with Caesar because they both coexist at the same time. I would play with Caesar for an hour, and then I'd eat some dinner, and then I'd go to the emergency vet, and I'd stay with Ace for an hour. You know, the first couple of weeks, he didn't do much, but i talked to him, i pet him, i reassure him that, you know, he was Jeez. not abandoned. And, you know, I wouldn't get home until 9 or 10 at night, and then i do the same thing the following day. So, yeah, that's a level of financial commitment. That's a level of emotional commitment, and that's what they mean to me. You know, I don't have children. Right. So, to me, they are my children. Jeez. So, how would you explain it to somebody who maybe doesn't understand that type of decision how would you explain that to others i you know i'm no psychologist but people have attachments to things for example maybe you have a 1972 dodge challenger and this baby is cherry you know you you keep working on it every day and you drive down the street and it's like <laughs> you know and you've put so much time and energy and money into it Sure, you could have gone on a trip to Europe for that kind of money. You could have bought yourself, you know, three new cars for the price it costs to keep this one moving. So I think people choose what they become attached to. A lot of times, though, our attachments can cause problems in our relationships. As being a dog lover, a dog fanatic, a, a dogaholic, um, has that ever caused the problem in your personal life or with your relationships <laughs> or anything like that? If you ask... Um, my ex-girlfriend, and this is not why she's my ex-girlfriend, if you ask her, in fact, if you ask anybody I know, and, and, and I say, who's the one person I love the most in the world? And you would say? I would say Ace. Oh. All right. First of all, notice Caesar has his own arm. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'd say Caesar. And then Ace and Crixus and No Matter on the other arm. Got it. So yeah, I would I would say see. Well, that's what I would always tell my girlfriend. Tell my ex girlfriend. I said, listen, I I love you more than any other person that's alive right now. And she'd be like, Yeah, I know. The dog comes first. So look, let's uh, let's do this. Let's take a quick break right. and uh, come back. Do a little rapid fire, and then I want to talk about. Um, something that's uh, a little difficult. I want to talk about putting a dog to sleep. That's a tough one.
All right, dude, we're back. Let's see. Let's do a little rapid fire. You ready? Yep. All right. Have you ever, or would you ever, have you ever thrown a dog party? Yes. Have you ever allowed a dog to lick your face? Yes. Allowed your dog to sleep with you? Yes. Have you ever spooned your dog? Yes. Broken up with somebody over your dog? No. Have you ever gotten in a fight with another person at a dog park? Um, I've threatened to get in a fight, and they backed down. All right, look, uh, I'm going to step off for a minute. Uh, I think Jason's going to come back on. Uh, he's going to talk to you about uh, what it is to euthanize your dog. So in the beginning of Nelson's uh, interview with you, he asked about what made your dog fanatic, and you started to answer, but then you uh, went into a discussion about being a responsible dog owner, taking care of the dog, taking the dog to the vet if it's sick, exercising it enough, right? Right. Um, well, I, I think in my case, I might have a slightly different perspective because if you look at my life, you know, it's been one medical emergency after another. And my parents and myself have had made the decisions, obviously, multiple times to spend the money and do what's necessary to keep me around. So I could see myself applying the same kind of logic to my dog. You know, that they provide an invaluable resource to me. The money part doesn't matter. I think I mentioned earlier how my doctor said he didn't want me to have a dog right. after the transplant. And I said that was one of the non-negotiable parts. I was keeping my dog. But obviously, no amount of exercise, no amount of taking a dog to the vet is going to stop the inevitable. Uh, most dogs are going to get sick some worse than others, some earlier than others. And even with expensive medical interventions, the dog's eventually going to succumb. Have you ever had to make the decision to put your dog down, to euthanize your dog? Yes. So how do you make that decision? All right, we'll start with Caesar since he's my favorite. It starts early. I mean... I'm an intelligent, grown human being. I understand that dogs have limited lifespans. In fact, if you ask most dog lovers, they'll say the worst thing about dogs is they don't live long enough. But it starts, I mean, season made it to 12, right? which is good for German Shepherd. But you start thinking about it at age six, age seven, age eight, age nine. And he started to develop long-term problems. Like he, he started dragging his one leg and... You know, um, so it's in your mind, you know, or you're maybe you're at the vet's office and you're waiting your turn and you see somebody come out holding on to a leash and they're just sobbing their brains out. And you're like, oh, no, yeah. you know, so, you know, they've gone, they've just gone through it. So I knew it was coming. And the way I got through it was I would say to myself, he's going to die, but not today. Mm -hmm. And that's how I could rationalize it and push it into the corner and get through the rest of it. But my there day. is a day, right? It's coming. Oh, yeah, and it's coming. And to a large extent, pet owners, you could argue responsible pet owners, recognize when that day comes and they have to make that decision. You know, how you consider yourself a, a, a responsible pet owner, but you're also a fanatic. Like, how do you make that decision? Like, at, at what point do you say, you know what, it's not worth that next treatment. It's not worth that next prescription. It's not worth taking the dog in for more tests. How do you know when it's time? You don't. Okay. At least that's the way I look at it. So, you know, I've been divorced 
I've had a double lung transplant. Mm-hmm. Um, I've gotten sick multiple times. Um, both my parents have died. But I think the hardest thing I ever went through was the death of Caesar. Specifically making that decision? Because you have to make the decision. Yeah, exactly. You can't ask them what they think. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no living will. There's nothing that he can sign that says, right. no, I'm good if we do this. Um, and there's there's two warring thoughts in your head the whole time. One is, do I have to do it today? Yep. Can I extend it another day, another week? the answer to that is always yes. Yes, you can always extend Realist- it another yeah. day, another week, maybe next month. Right. Um, but to me, the final determining factor was I looked at his face. And dogs are very expressive. They've sure. learned evolutionarily, they've learned to become very expressive, and humans are very yes, expressive. Yes, specifically through the face, right? They, they gaze into our eyes, we gaze into theirs, and we communicate. He lost the ability to use his back legs, but I would had this big sash I would do, and I would put it under his legs, and he would walk like two miles, and, you know, after a year of that, my shoulders were hurting, my wrists were hurting, my elbows were hurting, but as long as he was happy, as long as he was motoring along, yeah, I was fine. Right. You know, um, so when he's having trouble walking, obviously there's something inside you that says, look, it's it maybe sooner than later. Right. Right. So for a year, we, we kept this up. And then one day he was in the car and I, I looked at his face and he was done. Mm-hmm. Like you could tell he was tired. Like not, I have been running around like an idiot tired. I mean, tired deep in his bones. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've seen enough people at that level, so it's easy to recognize. And I made the decision, and I made the appointment, and just for fun, that was nine years, one month, and seven days ago, Mm. if anybody's keeping track. Um, That's a fanatic right there, by the way. Um, So I made the decision, and um, the night before, what I did was I took him to his favorite dog parks. I let him pick which one he wanted to get out at. And we walked around a little bit, and he wanted to go back in the car, so he told me. Um, he gets back in the car, and I drove to a frozen yogurt place, and I bought him a yogurt. I bought me a yogurt. And then after he finished his, I, I gave him mine. I mean, at this point, you know, you're not going to hurt the dog. Yeah. You know. Not worried about diabetes at this point. Right. And it, it was strange now. I, I maintain that Caesar was smarter than the average bear. Um, but that night, it's like he knew something was different. Mm-hmm. I laid on the living room floor next to him, and I just looked in his face all night. And he looked in my face all night. Oh, he, wow. did, he did not fall asleep. I did not fall asleep. There was something going on. Now, I had Ace at that point, but Ace went in the corner by himself. Okay. It's almost like he knew something was going on. That he wasn't a part of. Right. Like he needed to give you guys that time. That yeah. And we, we spent the whole night. And at 8 o'clock the next morning, I got up and I, I drove him to the hospital, to the vet. And, um, you know, they had everything set aside. We walked in this room. And they had the blankets sit down. And I had already paid for everything beforehand, a couple of days before. Because mm-hmm. I didn't want to deal with that while in a highly emotional state. Right. So we get there. And he had developed um bladder infection so periodically i would have to get uh we get a catheter in there and then take out the infection 
And I think he thought he was being catheterized again. So we sit down and he tries to get up, which he can't because he can't use his back legs. And I start telling him, I was like, okay, it's okay. We're, we're just going to stay here. And he relaxed. And then um, for those of you who don't know, typically what happens is when they do the euthanization, uh, the first shot puts them literally to sleep where they, they, they close their eyes, they relax. And then the second shot is the one that stops Not their so heart. So Caesar was still thinking about trying to <laughs> make his escape, and um, I started crying. Yeah. I started crying. Um, they gave him the first shot, and I just started bawling. And it was interesting because he stopped trying to escape. He, he saw that I was in distress, mm-hmm. and he leaned over, and he started giving me kisses. Like he was worried about you. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His very last act on earth was to comfort me. While he died. While he died. Yeah. It reminds me of a, a short story I read in high school or college um, called Even Elich by Leo Tolstoy. And I don't know if you've ever read it or heard of it, but there's a man who's dying mm-hmm. in the story, and his family are really upset by it. And he hasn't really talk to his family about the fact that he's dying and they haven't talked to him about their concerns about him dying and so pretty much 90 percent of the short story is about both of them both sides the man who's dying and his family sort of walking around on eggshells tiptoeing around the subject and eventually somebody broaches the subject and they find out oh wait a minute dad is not afraid of is not worried about dying He's worried about how we feel about it. Yeah. And we're not so upset about it either. We're worried about the fact yeah. Yeah. that he's dying. And so once they actually communicate that, um, both of them can let go. And it's interesting that dogs don't have the ability to speak, yet they can um, communicate just as, if not more effectively, um, through their body language, through their facial expressions, through their well, it nonverbal. Was, it was... I, I I can't. It's the same level of love and dedication that a family member would give you, you know, that they would reassure you. And then my vet and the vet techs all started crying. They loved him. They loved him. And um, that's Highsmith Animal Hospital. Nice. Um, these people are awesome. If you ever need to go, that's who to call. Yes. Um, so you've heard the saying, "A man's best friend." believe that literally yes i think nelson had it right in some ways you know dogs aren't going to judge you by the clothes you wear they're not going to judge you about your political beliefs or religion or they just want you yeah and that's it and they're fiercely loyal and i I just want to finish up that the bit about him falling asleep Mm -hmm. um i waited in the room for about another 10, 15 minutes. And they let me take as much time as I wanted. And um, I, with death, your face relaxes because all the nerves and effort and everything that your body puts into maintaining your face goes away. And it really helped me because I realized, you know, because I was bawling my eyes out, but I realized what was left behind was not him. Sure. That was the body he traveled around in. Mm-hmm. 
So I kissed him goodbye and I left. But here's what's interesting. When, when I was 12, my dad was killed. And um, we went to the funeral. And of course, you're 12. Dead bodies are weird, even if you know who they are. And my mom kissed my dad goodbye. And at 12, I, I didn't understand. It's like, oh my God, that's a dead body. Why, why is she kissing it? Or, and it wasn't until 30 years later that I understood what she was doing is the same thing that I did. Right. That this person, in this case, the dog, meant that much to you that you saw past the death. The um, oh yeah, the fact that there's nobody home, there's nothing left right. inside, made me literally. If you've been embalmed, right? Right. Uh, yet didn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was rough. It was the hardest thing I've ever done, easily. Now we didn't um, ask this in the rapid fire. I think it's probably a little too emotional to do it, but you know, I've I've heard of some people. Um, having their dog cremated and they keep their remains or some people, you know, go so far as to have a funeral for their dogs and they, you know, bury them in a pet cemetery and go in and visit the dog. Um, first and foremost, if you don't mind, do you, did you cremate or bury your dog? He's or, cremated. And did you do anything special with his remains? Do you still have them? Actually in my will, right. I'm going to be cremated. And I provided money for an airline ticket for somebody okay. to take me and my dog's ashes to Ireland. Wow. And scatter them on the hills of Ireland. Now, this so, would be all the dogs you've had? No, oh, just Caesar. Just Caesar. And we would spend the rest of eternity walking on our spirits. Of- yeah. Nice. Well, since we're getting into the spiritual realm here, um, have you ever or do you ever talk to Caesar? Yes. Yeah. There is something else also that's, again, I don't know if this is spiritual, just psychological. Right. When I was in the hospital recovering from my operation, I was on a lot of drugs. And they told me, you're going to hallucinate. And, you know, at first I was like, oh, my God. That's weird. That's a bad thing, right? Yeah, we have medications to try to keep people from doing that. Right. I'm thinking thinking like a bad acid trip or something like that. But Not that you've ever tried acid. No, no. Um, but I was in my hospital bed, and I realized that somebody was in the bed with me. Mm-hmm. Like there was a physical Body object, in it. Yeah. and it was leaning against me, spooning against me, I yeah, guess yeah. you could say. And on, um, I opened my eyes, and it was Caesar. He was laying in bed. Now, keep going. At this point, he had already been dead three sure, years. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Right. So he's been gone. Yeah. And, you know, I have a dog. Yeah. It's Ace. And I'm sure you have a great relationship with Ace. And um, so I'm laying there and I realize, oh, you know, I'm looking around. There's no water bowl. Wow. So I thought, well, I, I should probably get up and get him some water, <laughs> you know. And when I went to get up, he gently reached over and grabbed my wrist to stop me from getting out of bed. Wow. And he looked at me, and I knew he was communicating to me, you don't have to take care of me anymore. I'm here for you to take care of you. And you were completely conscious, or at least pseudo-conscious at that time. You said you'd woken up. 
Yeah, I knew I was right. in my hospital right. room. My brother was over in the yeah. corner. Kind of like a machines, waking dream. Yeah, the machines are all pumping away. But I felt him. Like the, oh, yeah. The actual, I don't know how much you're supposed to feel in a dream, but I literally felt his weight pressing oh, against yes, my rib cage. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So to me, that says he's still there. And I know some people are going to look at this and, and, you know, balderdash or whatever, but I don't know. It's No, I mean, he still is in the map of your mind, obviously. And we don't just have a map in terms of, like, our cognitive memories of, you know, information in the sense that, you know, you know his name and you remember things about him in that way. I believe our brains have maps that represent physical space, represent physical sensations. I think about people who have, you know, they go in for bariatric surgery. Let's say they're 500 pounds. And in a matter of six months, they lose 100, 150 pounds. You know, they still walk as if they are 500. They still move through space as if they're 500 pounds. I'm saying the brain can hold on to physical it, sensations for a very long time. I guess it's kind of like phantom limb syndrome. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So, yeah, you, you, it's very possible that even in your waking, normal, conscious life, uh, following the death of a loved one, a dog, whoever, uh, you would still sense their presence, but not just in the abstract, but physically sense their presence. Um, and so, you know, following that line, are there ever moments when you're going through your day-to-day and you hear Caesar barking or see him sitting somewhere? You know, no. our dog's been dead for just a few months now, and Whitney routinely um, says that she sees Maui walking from one part of the room to the next, or she smells, or she hears Maui, or she senses that Maui is there. She, she's... Um, she's I would, I would. She's conscious of the fact that Maui's gone, but at the same time, something comes over her and, and reminds her in a very visceral sense. But no, I, Maui's here. I think that's more almost like an anticipatory yeah. thing. Like you've walked into the kitchen so 6, many times, times yeah, yeah. and it's there learned. she is. Yeah. So your brain is automatically filling in. Predicting, anticipating. Right, that. to make yeah. the, you know, yeah. when you talk about memory, the whole idea is they're going to yeah. fill in the gaps that don't need to be mm-hmm. filled in. that will do it automatically yeah, for yeah. you. So, well, yeah, the dog's always there. So, But the phantom, too, though, I'm thinking, you know, like, it, it's probably easier for her brain to interpret otherwise noise from the environment as Maui's bark, right? In the same way that you might interpret a scr- uh, your leg itching as your cell phone vibrating inside your pocket. Mm. You reach in and it's, there's nothing there, yeah. right? So your brain is kind of, yeah, you're right. It's anticipating something that has been there many, 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 many times before and only recently maybe has has gone away. Um, I guess it's kind of an anticipatory pattern. Yeah. The, uh, the, the pain, you, you describe the pain uh, of loss. Um, do you think it's possible to grieve a pet like people grieve humans? Sure. I mean, it's the same principle. You know, I had Caesar when I developed diabetes. Mm-hmm. And I had to completely start my life all over. I had Caesar when I was going through my divorce. There were so many things that happened in my life. And he was there. He was my part companion. Of, yeah. He was the one part that was consistent. So when you take away that consistent support system, mm-hmm. what's the difference between that and a best friend or, yeah, yeah. you know, something like that? Or a human. Yeah. Um, 
the other thing I wanted to mention, you talk about grief, um, and I'm, I'm mentioning this because there are actual services out there for people who have a difficult time dealing with the loss of a pet. Right. And I know some people will say, well, it's just a dog. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you think, but if that person has invested so much time and love and, and companionship, right. you rip that away, it's still a death. Yeah. Myself, I actually had to go on antidepressants for six months because I was so upset. I was drinking like way too much Wow. because I was depressed. And it's interesting because Ace could tell the difference. Mm-hmm. I was not myself. Um, but it was, yeah, it was difficult. So if people are out there and they're having difficulty, I would suggest that you talk to a therapist or talk to any group. Just type in, you know, help with um, deceased animals or pets. And they can talk, you know, they can talk to you. They can help you find someone that to talk, you can talk to. And there's no shame in it. Right. There's no shame in it because it's still a death. It's still a loss. Well, depending on how many listeners we get for this episode of Put Them on the Couch, Pets Edition, um, I think it's something that we should maybe continue to do periodically is sort of have a, a pet check, uh, pet update, so to speak. And we just kind of share different topics related to pets. Today, it seems like we focused on um, what separates a good pet owner from maybe one that's, you know, fanatic as well as the loss of a pet. But I can only imagine there are people out there that have dozens, if not you know, um, several dozen, important questions related to pet ownership. So I, I was also thinking maybe listeners have some stories that they know about themselves or other people that have gone to you know, extraordinary lengths, let's put it to take care of their pets. It might be interesting to share, and maybe you'll find out that you're not alone, that there are others like that around the world. I'm one. So are you volunteering to host a call-in show about pets, pet ownership, pet questions? Sure. All right, we'll see about getting something like that put together. Again, maybe as a podcast episode, um, that's a live episode where you can call in in real time uh, and or, again, doing some, something like YouTube Live where if people don't feel comfortable having their voice live, they can simply type their question in. All right, man. Well, I'm going to get out of here. Uh, I want to thank Nelson. Thank you, Bob, for uh, joining us again. We'll have to have you back in the near future. And thank those who are listening from home or from your iPhones or your cars. We appreciate your support. We hope you'll continue to download and share these podcasts with your circle of friends. Until next time, peace. Once I had a little dog, I called him Cracker Jack. He had a spot around one eye that looked just like a patch. His legs were way too long and he was awkward as could be. He wasn't much to look at, but he looked all right to me.